you have a Bible and you want to turn to Proverbs again, we're going to continue on this study in Proverbs. Like I said, we're not going to go through every little individual proverb or whatever else. I'm not planning on making this a three-year study, but I do want to cover especially a few things here at the beginning. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 8 through 19 tonight, and we'll look at the rest of the chapter next week. Beginning in verse 8, Proverbs chapter 1, he writes, My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, or in whole like those that go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. And so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owner. And Father, I ask you, Lord, once again tonight that you'll open our minds, our hearts, and our understanding to the wisdom that's here in your word. I ask you to help me to speak to the situations here tonight and have us all prepared and ready and willing to receive your word from your lips. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. We pointed out last time that the book of Proverbs is a guidebook. So it's not a guidebook for sinners. Sinners might get a little something out of it, but they're not going to get much. It's really written for the saints of God. And what it's done is it's teaching us how to navigate in this world that we live in. So it's not teaching us how to navigate in the world that God intended. We obviously see that we are not in the garden. We're surrounded in this world by wicked, sinful men who are not guided by the Spirit of God. Now, who are they guided by? The God of this world, Satan. And so we need wisdom to know how to deal with this fallen world. We need help. Because as God's people, we're seeking to live by His standards, using His wisdom. And in doing that, the Bible, New Testament says, we are like sheep that are led to the slaughter in the midst of wolves, aren't we? We need his wisdom to deal with all the subtlety and craft of Satan and those that are following him. What we have is Satan, he will try to paint his picture of reality and what it's like. And he does that how? He does it in our culture, in TV, in music, in movies, and on and on and on. And he creates this worldview, this way to look at the world. And that's what's happening when you turn your TV on, if you do, and you sit there and you watch these sitcoms and the news and just everything else. That you're getting a worldview being given to you. And through that, he also is giving his wisdom, and this is how you should deal with life. And that wisdom, we said, it talks about in James, that's not from above, that doesn't come from the Lord, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. There's two kinds of wisdom that are in this world that are being propagated on us. And the other wisdom that comes to us through Proverbs and I would say the whole Bible, but Proverbs and other wisdom books that he's given us, it gives us what God's picture of reality is like, his reality and what life is really like. It's the truth of the world 
what we're seeing in this world from his perspective. And it gives us a different worldview on everything than what's being presented by Satan and his cultural opinions or whatever. So it affects our speech, money, friends, work, and sex. And God tells us this is how we should deal with life. He's instructing us this is how we should deal with life through Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and on using his divine wisdom. And the key to understanding what is truth and reality, we said, is verse 7. Look back at that. The fear of the Lord. That's the beginning. That's where it starts. And it doesn't just start and end there. It goes on. It's the beginning. It's the foremost thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools, it says, despise wisdom and instruction. So he says, without the fear of the Lord, you're going to approach your life how? As a fool. And it clearly says all through the book of Proverbs again and again and again that when you approach life that way, without the fear of the Lord, you'll be a fool. And in the end, you will be destroyed. That's what it says. So we said Solomon doesn't just jump straight into the Proverbs. We have nine chapters here where he's giving us discourses. He's trying to get our hearts and our mind right before he gets into telling us this is how you should live. Otherwise, it just becomes good advice. And if our hearts and minds aren't right, we don't understand where he's coming from. We don't have the fear of the Lord. We don't see the importance of wisdom and how it's a life and death situation. Then we may not understand what's being said and we may not even be willing to obey it. We need to have that first. We need to have that desire stirred up. And that's what he's doing here in these first nine chapters. He's developing our character. We have nine discourses that take place in these first nine chapters. Seven of them are a father talking to his son. Two of them are lady wisdom making appeals. Appeals to follow her and listen to her wisdom. And so that what we have here in this verses 8 to 19 that we just read are the first discussion of the father with his son. And then Next week, we'll look at 20 to 33, and that's the first appeal of the two appeals from Lady Wisdom. And it's really just an extension of, of what we'll be looking at tonight. Let's look first at this discussion of the father with his son. And in this discussion that we just read about here, there's two voices that are being heard in this discussion. The one is the father's voice, and he talks very tenderly to his son. He's not getting all over his case and his back. He's talking very tenderly, very lovingly, and he's telling him, this is what life's reality is. Here is the reality of life, and I'm going to give you the wisdom and how to deal with it. And the other voice that we're reading here is the voice of sinners or fools who seek to entice young men, young women, and all of us, for that matter, into their life of violence. And they're trying through that through their enticement, through their words, they're trying to deny the outcome. They're trying to deny God's justice. That's what's going on here. First, let's look at the offer of wisdom. And we see that, it's my first point, the offer of wisdom in verses 8 to 9. And he says, my son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother, for there will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. This is just a father giving advice to his son, an adolescent son, on the verge of being old enough to get married. And I think every dad in here, or whoever, if you haven't already done it, maybe you've already done it, you need to have some kind of talk with your son during those teenage years and point out the blessings of serving the Lord, 
and the pitfalls of the ways of the world. You need to ask your kids, okay, Sue, this is what you want to do. Well, where is this going to take you? You need to think about that, don't you? Where is this going to take you? I heard a guy say, I thought, that's a good way of looking at it. I hate to use myself as an example, but it's a, make a point, I guess, is what I'm going to do. But, you know, when Thomas was a teenager, he reached a point when he had to make a decision of staying at the school he was at, Sayers, where it's a partial homeschooling, a classical school, they call it, or going to public school. And the issue was he was really good at baseball, and he liked baseball. He wanted to play baseball. So we had to talk about that. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> there's this thing of playing baseball, maybe getting a baseball scholarship. But I said, the school you're at now, and it just so happened at that time at Sayers, they have a lot of their teachers are men from the seminary. And there's some of them, I would say, more whatever than others. But he had a group of guys there that I felt were wise, godly men. And they took a liking to Thomas. And they were giving him a lot of good, wise, godly counsel. And I said, that's one thing you'll have if you stay at that school. Plus, he'd already shown an interest in going to college. And I'm saying you're going to get better study habits there than you would at the public school. And it's going to probably help you get a scholarship that way. I said, on the other hand... You go to the public school when you play baseball, that baseball just tends to just be a dead-end street, even if you end up playing in college. Most of those, it just is a dead-end street, believe me, for the most part. You'd have to be exceptional. Plus, I said, here's the other thing you need to consider, is you're going to have boys that are on that team. They're not going to be Christians. They're, you're going to be spending a lot of time around them, and they're going to drag you down. And we had that talk, and I said, I'm going to leave it up to you, though. Because I wasn't going to force him to do something that he's just hating me the rest of his life. And I said, just take some time. And he came back to me a few weeks later and he said, I'm going to stay at Dorothy Sayers. And I don't think he's ever regretted making that decision. I think there's a point to where that's what I see going on here. That's what God is doing with us through Solomon. He's having a talk with us. And he's saying, look, I'm going to point out, here's what's going to go on when you get out in the world. You're going to have these conversations. People are going to come to you and entice you a certain way. I'm going to say, hey, this is really, though, what you need to do, my son. And if you'll listen to me and you'll listen to the advice of your mother, you'll not regret it. That's what he's telling him here. He says, you listen to me and you're going to have honor, grace, and it'll make you attractive. That's why he says there, it'll be graceful. Listen to the instruction of your father, my son. Don't forsake the law of your mother. It'll be a graceful ornament, a crown on your head and chains around your neck. And that man I talked about, Bruce Walkie, he said, in Solomon's kingdom, wise children wear his splendid teachings figuratively as a necklace. So the ones that would listen to Solomon and were godly people, they could walk around and hold their heads up high, couldn't they? And they were held in esteem. I'm saying this, don't you think that the world deep down respects those that they know are true Christians? Just look at a place in the Bible. Look at the honor that three Hebrew boys had when they were taken to Babylon. Now, those boys, they did not compromise one bit, did they? They held on to their Christian convictions in the midst of a ungodly society, trying to talk them out of everything they believed, and they didn't do it. And here's what he's saying. You do that? You stick with that? They may not like you. I mean, they were ready to throw them in the fiery furnace, weren't they? Because they wouldn't bow down to the king. But even then, God honored them, didn't he? In front of everyone, including the king. But before we get to that, when we're, that's chapter 3. But when you get into chapter 1 of Daniel, when the king examines those three boys, it said he found them to be ten times better, and I'd say in all respects, than the magicians and the astrologers in his realm. 
what Solomon writes here. We're saying he's, ex- he's looking at life and he's saying this is the way it is. Saying Christian people, you could give testimonies where God gives you favor despite the fact somebody hates you. But it's just you're doing a better job, you're ethical, and that's the way it is for you, Rob, at work. I know it is. So it was said even of our Lord, we can stick with the Bible here, that when he grew up, it said Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and not just God, but and man. Wisdom, stature and favor. We're called in the New Testament. What are we called to do? We're called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on and that'll make us attractive to the world in a way they don't even know. But they may not agree with us and they may persecute us, but they will respect us. They know who you are. They know the stand you take and you have a good testimony. When they have problems, guess who they're going to come to? To either maybe get some advice or ask for prayer. Does that happen to people in here? You know, Smith Wigglesworth at Lester Summerall went and visited him and he's like, man, there's nobody around. He's like, well, nobody comes around to me. Smith Wigglesworth tells him I'm the loneliest man on this block. Nobody wants to visit me because I'm a kook, they think, a religious fanatic. He said, but they come to me, though, when they or their children are sick and they want prayer. (laughs) God honors them, doesn't he? So the promise of the father is here. If he'll listen to him, listen to the father and his mother, he won't be disappointed. He won't look like a fool in the end. But he says, instead, you'll have a crown on your head and you'll have the gold medal around your neck, so to speak, that everybody covets so much. And he goes on there. You have the offer of wisdom and then you have the warning of wisdom. And that's the rest of the chapter, verses 10 to 19. And the father begins by instructing his son. Basically, what he's telling him here is don't join a gang, a group that it says there, come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Now, listen, if you're like me, we went through those first seven verses. You listen to that. You go through those first seven verses. Solomon has just told us all the benefits you're going to get from listening to his wisdom and applying it. And you're kind of waiting on the edge of your seat thinking, all right, what's this great man going to tell me next about what wisdom is going to do for me and all this? What great lessons. And what does he do? He basically tells you, don't join the mafia. And you're thinking, you know, those bullies that they want to shed innocent blood and just do violence to people. Well, I want to ask you, who in this room has ever been tempted to join the mafia, or I would say, or a gang? I mean, I don't know that anybody has, right, <laughs> in here. Not many, if any. But I think there is still, despite what he's saying there, I think there's a direct application to our lives in this exhortation. So the first thing he says there... Down in verse 10, he says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And by sinners, he's not talking about someone that has sinned, like somebody else in the church that you saw missing. He's talking about habitual, chronic sinners. He's talking about people that live their lives outside of God's boundaries. That's where they live. To use our vernacular, it's just somebody that they don't really care about God. They're out for number one. And they're going to get ahead their own way, however they want to do it. And they think they can do anything they want to do because these people here, they have no fear of God at all. They don't believe he set boundaries and they don't think he will enforce them. These kind of people, this much I know, I know more than I care to know. But these kind of people dominate social media, especially what the youth are looking at. 
dominated. They're enticing. They're persuading, just like these people here. If sinners entice you, he says, do not consent. Enticing, persuading, deceiving the young. And I would say not just the young. It's everybody. But it's especially the young. Through this social media now. And what are they doing? They're enticing, persuading, deceiving to forsake the word of God. To forsake the teaching of your father, of your mother, of what you've heard across the pulpit from the word of God in this church. What they're presenting is a world with no boundaries. That's what he's talking about here with these sinners. No need for discernment. No need for discernment at all because God is love and he doesn't judge and you shouldn't either. Just do what you're comfortable with. I've heard it said that way exactly. Is that what he's talking about here? I think it is. And listen, these people can be nice about it and pleasant. That doesn't mean they don't fit in this category. I guarantee you these people are enticing this guy. They're saying it in a real nice way. That's the way it's going. And the second thing is, he says, my son, listen, listen up. If sinners entice you and they will, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without a cause. When he says, if they're, he's not saying it like it might not happen. He's saying if like when, when they do it, because he knows they will. He knows it's going to happen, like all of us know. Remember, he's writing to who? He's writing to the youth. And the older people here and the youth and the young ones, they'll know it soon enough. What is the greatest amount of peer pressure you're ever going to face in your life? It's during when? Your teenage years, isn't it? During your adolescent years. That's the way it happens. And there's only one way you're going to overcome that. How's that going to happen? That political correctness. I mean, we have to deal with that as adults, don't we? It's not just you. This political correctness coming at all of us, isn't it? And that's the fear of the Lord. This father, he enlightens this son by showing him clearly this is how the conversation is going to go. If they say, the words he presents, they show that these people condemn themselves by what they say. We're going after innocent blood. We're going to lurk privily. But he also shows how they do it, how alluring they are, how subtle it is. And they use deceit to allure. Let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly. And they put the offer of easy money. Verse 13, we'll find all kinds of precious possessions. We'll fill our houses with spoil. And they also say there's going to be fellowship involved. Cast your lot among us. Let us all have and share one purse. That allurement of deceit, of easy money, or I would say pleasure, you could put pleasure in there and fellowship is very strong. And it's like I said, if you're a young person, there is only one way you're going to overcome that. And that is if you have a healthy fear of the Lord. Otherwise, it won't work because we have this strong God has built in us. So all sin, all it is, is a perversion trying to pervert and distort something that God has put in you that's a right desire. And what's a desire God has given all of us in here? And that's this sense of community, wanting to belong. And the enticement here is to have that need met, but in the wrong way. And that's a pressure that we are going to have to deal with, isn't it? I mean, it's a pressure that you have in your home, 
Who wants to be the oddball at home or school or work or even in a church? I mean, face it, there's peer pressure in church. We all tend to kind of think and believe the same. That's just the way it is. And no one even wants to be the oddball out here. That's just the way it is. And especially in society. We're going to have to deal more and more and more with it in a societal sense in this country as it becomes more and more anti-Christian. Now, I don't usually get into too much, I could probably more, I don't get into too much social current event type stuff. But we've had a few things happen here to where I think I am going to share this tonight. So we're saying there's this pressure. Come with us. Come join us. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary, I don't think anybody would call him an alarmist. I wouldn't. He's not that type of person at all. You know, some people, they're always like sounding the alarm, crying wolf or whatever, making things worse than they are. But he's not that way. But he has his daily briefing that he puts out every day that deals with current news. And I would like to share some of this with you, if you could bear with me. And here's what he wrote, or here's what he said, and they put it in a transcript. California is set to enact legislation barring the sale of any books expressing orthodox Christian beliefs on sexuality. And he says this, wherever they have been found, whenever they have lived under whatever political circumstances, Christians have always borne the responsibility of being faithfully Christian regardless of the political and social circumstances. At many twists and turns in church history, this has been excruciatingly difficult. And he says, we need to note at no time in church history could it or should it have been easy. So he's saying there's been times it's been very, very difficult not to give in to what society's pressuring you to do. You know, Jesus never promises that's what he's saying, never promises it'll be easy. But he says, but in our moment right now, in the post-Christian West, he's talking about America. This is no longer a Christian nation, if you didn't know that. In the post-Christian West, we are facing some challenges that previous generations of Christians, at least in our civilization, have never faced before. But it's beyond that. He says we are actually facing some moral questions, some basic issues of moral revolt that no previous generation of Christians had to face. And the terrain is changing so very quickly. Yesterday, in the nation's most populous state, California, the General Assembly adopted legislation that would make it illegal to sell, for example, a book that represents traditional, orthodox, historic Christian teaching on gender and sexual orientation. If those words are too big for you, he's saying you could not write a book saying it's a sin to be a homosexual, transgender, bisexual, lesbian, whatever other word I'm leaving out of here. I don't know all those little things. That's what he's saying. Can't sell a book. They've enacted legislation in California. It's being worked on being passed. He says, now we've already seen the state of California and some other states move to make it illegal for any kind of licensed counselor to be involved in any effort to change an individual's sexual orientation, particularly minors. He says it's already illegal in the state of California to do that. To counsel somebody that wants to say, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm a homosexual. To counsel, no, you're not that. You're a guy. You're, you're, you, you should have desires for a woman. That's what the Bible... You can't do that. It's illegal. That's what he says. He says, now just keep in mind that this being packaged as consumer fraud legislation, that's how this law is being passed in California, meaning that it would be, according to the state of California, 
fraudulent and illegal to offer in any way to have anything to do with the change in sexual orientation or, for that matter, one's sexual identity. He says, now keep in mind the fact that under the guise of this consumer fraud legislation, there is an inclusion of virtually everything that has any kind of transfer of money. That would involve the sale, for example, of a book. But according to experts in California, it would also refer to paying a pastor. So you couldn't pay a pastor that would counsel somebody that you do not have to be a homosexual. And no, you don't need a sex change and you shouldn't have one according to God's word. Now that's getting there, isn't it? We've seen this over and over again that those who are the revolutionaries pushing for the moral revolution, especially on the LGBT issues, they are setting out to eradicate, even by force of coercive law, anyone who would represent any worldview that would stand in their way. Now, for years, we have been told that warnings like this have been nothing but Christian paranoia. But now we're looking at something that actually passed the California General Assembly yesterday and is expected to sail through the California Senate. And if it starts there, it's not long before it'll be here. That's the way everything else has worked. I mean, who would have ever thought we'd have been in a country where I don't know how many states now you can legally smoke marijuana, legally be a dopehead, and nobody thinks anything of it anymore. That's unbelievable to me. He went on to say, I'm not because I'm not reading everything, hope I'm not boring you, but so what we're being told here is that when someone comes to a counselor, or for that matter, perhaps even a pastor, and says, I'm uncomfortable with my sexual orientation, I would like to see how I might perceive or experience a different sexual orientation, if that involves anything that just might come close to a financial transaction, even explicitly including the sale of books, well, that would now be illegal in the state of California under this legislation. Now, remember that the legislation explicitly targets what are called sexual orientation change efforts. Now, think about that for just a moment. Just about any Christian church involved in any kind of authentic biblical preaching is going to be challenging every single person who hears the scriptures to obey the scriptures and all that God commands. And that includes our sexual behavior, but it also includes our understanding of sexual orientation. He goes on to say later, a licensed counselor could not help a married mother of three who was experiencing unwanted attraction to a close female friend or confusion over her identity overcome these feelings. Secondly, a religious ministry could not hold a conference on maintaining sexual purity if the conference encourages attendees to avoid homosexual behavior. Third, a bookstore, including online bookstores, could not sell many recently published books challenging gender identity ideology and advocating that those beliefs should be rejected by society. And fourth, a pastor paid to speak at an event addressing social topics could not encourage attendees that they can prevail over same-sex desires or feelings that they were born the wrong sex. Now, an incredible number of Christians have simply had so much faith in the American political system that they have reassured themselves that this kind of thing simply can't happen. But this legislation isn't just potential. It was passed yesterday by the California General Assembly. And furthermore, it was passed after members of the assembly knew exactly what they were doing. 
But while we're looking at things actual, not merely potential, he brings in, this is a second thing. Now, I happened to be home eating my lunch, watching this. I saw this happen live. I actually saw it happen, what he went on to talk about. This is the second thing. So the first thing is California's saying, and they're using this monetary deal, you can't sell a book against homosexuality. A paid pastor out there could not be paid and counsel people against being homosexual or having a sex change or any of that stuff that's involved in any of that. I mean, that's getting there, isn't it? The second thing he brings up, we're looking at things actual, not merely potential. We need to look at something that also actually happened just in recent days. In this case, it was the Senate hearings of Mike Pompeo, who was nominated by President Trump to be the next United States Secretary of State. And here's what happened. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker confronted nominee Mike Pompeo, currently director. He's now the director of the CIA, asking him if he believed that homosexuality is a sin. I watched him ask that question. On national TV, Mike Pompeo's sitting there. He's a Christian. This guy asked him, Booker, he says, do you think homosexuality is a sin? During the time that he was in Congress representing Kansas, then-Representative Pompeo was very clear about his support for a definition of marriage as exclusively the union of one man and one woman. He was also opposed to the legalization, therefore, of same-sex marriage. So during these hearings held on April 12th, Senator Booker asked Pompeo, is being gay a perversion? This just happened a few days ago. Pompeo answered, Senator, when I was a politician, I had a very clear view on whether it was appropriate for two same-sex persons to marry. And I applaud him for this. He says, I stand by that. I like that guy. I watched this. I, I told my wife, so I like that guy. This is before I read this article. And I realized what they were doing to him. Senator Booker then asked, so you do not believe that it's appropriate for two gay people to marry? And Pompeo answered, Senator, I continue to hold that view. In other words, no, I don't think it's okay. That took some guts. Senator Booker then turned to Director Pompeo and asked him if he believed that if he were to be Secretary of State, he could deal fairly with all State Department employees, including LGBT employees. And Mr. Pompeo said, yes. And I would have answered yes. I have gay guys, I told you, I have gay guys come in our meeting at prison. I treat them nicely. I treat them fair. I don't treat them bad at all. And I'll talk about homosexuality when it comes up and it's time in the message. So to treat someone fairly, what does that mean? You're going to buy lunch for them if they need it or, you know, let them go ahead of you in the water cooler? That's all he's saying. Well, what, what does that have to do with that? That's not what they wanted to hear. The Washington Post summarized the issue this way, saying that Mr. Pompeo has a long record of opposition to same-sex marriage based on his religious views. And Dr. Moeller says, now hold that thought for just a moment and recognize that the very day after the hearings on his own personal Facebook page, Senator Booker released a statement saying that he would oppose Mike Pompeo on his nomination to be Secretary of State. And he raised this issue of LGBT rights and made it largely the driving issue explaining his opposition to Mike Pompeo. The senator wrote, I believe you can't lead the people if you don't love the people. He then went on to explain that he was going to vote against Mike Pompeo on his nomination to be Secretary of State. And by the way, there was no surprise there. The only surprise is the fact that Senator Booker made LGBT issues and the religious beliefs of Mike Pompeo the crucial issue. That's the problem. So they're saying now, if you hold certain religious beliefs, we're not going to let you hold office, any high, high office. 
And Mueller said, now here's what's important to note. Here you have a sitting United States senator, one of 100, who is stating very clearly that he will never support anyone who holds the traditional, biblical, orthodox Christian understanding of homosexuality and marriage to a high position of government, in this case as Secretary of State. He said, we should make absolutely no mistake. Senator Booker has left no room for any kind of misunderstanding. No one who holds now to a traditional Christian biblical understanding of gender or sex or sexuality is going to receive any vote for confirmation to a Senate confirmation required office. And he says at the most fundamental level, the biggest problem is perhaps the fact that Senator Booker, an agent to the United States government as an elected United States senator, is applying a religious test for public office. The United States Constitution explicitly prohibits any official of the United States government from applying such a religious test. And he's saying it's not just a religious test, this is a theological test. And I thought this was interesting too. Senator Booker, Al Mohler writes, speaking of Pompeo, said this, he and I are Christians. So Senator Booker says, well, we're both Christians. We believe in the ideal and mandate Love thy neighbor. And then he says, there are no exceptions to this. So Al Mohler says, so now you have Senator Booker identifying the only understanding of Christianity that he, as an elected official of the United States government, will accept. And what is that singular acceptable form of Christianity? It's a form of Christianity that would claim to continue the name, but to deny the clear teachings of Scripture. But here's what he goes on to say, and I thought this was important too. Here's how things change. Here's how society and culture affects change. And I thought this was good. So as we think about the big picture of how moral change happens in a society like ours, we come to understand that the culture changes first. Driven by numerous influences, a consumer culture, entertainment cultures, the media, higher education. So he's saying that at the top, the culture changes. And then downstream, it's translated into political power, usually by the facility of the courts, with the courts usurping the question. And then you have elected representatives very quickly showing how they get in line and become enthusiasts for the new morality. And here we have to notice, Christians, that's not enough. You not only have to have the culture change and then the politics change, bringing in even legal coercion, here, listen to this. You have the politicians becoming the high priest of a new religion. That's what Senator Booker's saying. I'm the high priest. I'm going to tell you what Christianity is. It's love thy neighbor, which means everybody, no matter what they do. That's what he's saying. The high priest of a new religion, a new acceptable religion, a new acceptable form of Christianity. Christianity without any part of the Bible that speaks to the historic Christian understanding of sexuality and gender and marriage. And he says, there may still be some who say, well, we're talking about the state of California, but that's California. Or we're talking about a Democratic senator from New Jersey and the Secretary of State, but that's a long way for me. In other words, hey, it's not going to affect me anytime soon. But he says, the next and the third thing he talks about is this army chaplain faces same-sex discrimination claim. Lawyer says he was following army guidance. And earlier this year, the Army Times reports this week that Army Major Scott Squires was serving as a chaplain at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and there he told a soldier he was unable to conduct a marriage retreat that included the soldier and the soldier's same-sex partner. 
due to his church's restriction. Well, the restriction was he is a chaplain representing the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention, it says, has believed ever since the formation of the denomination that marriage is exclusively the union of a man and a woman and that human sexuality is to be ordered by scripture as also is to be gender and gender identity. But just in case, again, there might be any misunderstanding about what's at stake, Mikey Weinstein, well known as the founder of what's known as the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, that's a secular organization that has been targeting the very idea of having military chaplains. He specifically identified the Southern Baptist Convention certification authority for military chaplains and argued that it should be reconsidered by the military because of this case. In other words, the Southern Baptist Conventions, they certify this guy as a chaplain representing us, and he's saying, we shouldn't be allowed to do that anymore. That's what this guy's promoting, this Weinstein. He went on to say, they're saying the Army requires them to follow their endorsing agency, which is demanding that its chaplains follow something our Supreme Court found was legal, talking about same-sex marriage. Weinstein then went on to say, then our argument is that the defense secretary ought to disqualify that particular entity, the Southern Baptist Convention, as a chaplain endorsing entity. Weinstein went on to say, if you're going to view same-sex couples as a sin against God, you either need to hold your tongue, change your attitude, or get out of the military. The lawyer that's representing this army chaplain says if their chaplains, meaning the Southern Baptist Convention, are no longer welcome because of their religious beliefs, that would be a clear violation of the Constitution. And then what happens to all the other endorsing agencies that hold similar views? In other words, the Roman Catholics, the Muslims, any Protestant church, just about, and many others. And he would say what that would do is, and here's what they're out to do, that would virtually eliminate the chaplain corps. And Moeller says, we need to note that's exactly what is behind all of this. The effort to eliminate, not just virtually, but actually, the entire chaplain corps. And he says, it's hard to imagine just how fast this moral revolution has progressed, but just think of these headlines from a single week in the United States of America. Holding to orthodox biblical Christianity, we're now told you can't serve as the United States Secretary of State. You probably can't serve in any other major political capacity. You can't serve as a chaplain in the United States military. And now, at least, if this legislation passes the Senate and is signed by the governor in California, as we expect, you can't even sell your book in that state representing orthodox biblical Christianity on these issues. And here's the last thing he says. I'm reminded of the fact that several years ago, an oceanographer told me that one of the most ominous aspects of a tidal wave is that even as it grows higher in the open ocean, it also begins to move faster. The tidal wave is so deadly because it grows higher, it also grows fast. And this tidal wave of moral change appears to be acting just like a tidal wave. But as we watch this tidal wave and seek to understand the moral realities around us, and seek as Christians to understand how to be faithful, even perhaps especially in these times, we have to understand that the tidal wave isn't just a what, it's a when. And these articles make clear the when is now. He's written a book that basically says 
The homosexual LGBTQMF, whatever all that is, community cannot believe how fast that they've been able to get our culture, our society, and our government to go along with their agenda. They're saying it's gone fast. We can't even keep up with it ourselves, what we're trying to promote. That's the way it is. And it's going to come down on us sooner than we think. That's the only reason I read that, because I don't think he's wrong with that. So get ready. And we need to get our children ready is the big thing. And didn't that fit in with what we're saying here? My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. When they say, come with us, let us shed innocent blood, because that's what they're going to want to do. We're going to be the innocent blood that they're going to want to shed. This is the pressure. No one wants to be out of step with the large community of society. And that was a great pressure on the early church. Christian and Muslims countries, how do, you, how do you think they have to deal with things over there? They can tell you what persecution is really like. They're out of step with everything going on over there, the ones that are Christians over there right now and in China. It's the one way that God's always purified his church, though, isn't it? And that's what's happening here. It's already happening in a lot of ways. That sense of community, we're back to the youth. That's what pressures youth in inner cities to join gangs. And I've talked to a lot of these guys in prison through the years, and gang members... These guys get seduced into these gangs because they're promised wealth, power, and belonging, and they feel like there's no other way I'm going to get that because I'm not getting it in my house. And that's what happens. And it happens, I'm talking to the youth here, that is what happens in high school and on this social media. It's that peer pressure to belong. So for myself, I know how all this works. I didn't grow up a Christian. I was a sophomore in high school. And I got in a car one day, good little Catholic boy, got in a car one day with four other guys, and they're all saying, we're going to go smoke marijuana. I never had. And I was, honestly, at that point, I was scared to death getting in that car, but I got in that car anyways. And I knew it was wrong. I really didn't want to do it. But here's what they tell you. Peer pressure, the allurement, come with us. It ain't going to hurt you. It's not like what you saw or you were told. You'll like it. And you can be part of the cool crowd. Now, they didn't use those exact words, but they did. That's the pressure that was put on me. You know what? You go from you're reluctant to then you give into it to where then you like it. And then you're out recruiting other people. And that was me. It led me down a dark path giving into that. And I'll tell you what, I wished I had listened to verses 15 and 16. What does the dad say to the son? He says, my son, don't walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path for their feet run to evil. They can't get there fast enough. They make haste to shed blood. That verse 15 there, that father is directly answering what those enticers are saying in verse 11. If they say, come with us, he's saying in verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Don't go with them. They're enticing you into trouble. And that's the word of wisdom to young people. That's it. So thirdly, who specifically are these sinners? Look what it says in verse 19. My son, hear the instruction of your father. If sinners entice you, verse 19 says, so are the ways of everyone who's greedy for gain. Unjust gain. And that can include money. Does include money. 
the motivation driving these greedy sinners is obviously money. Look in verse 13. We'll find all kinds of precious possessions, verse 13. We'll fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. And talking about money and all of that, how it's this drive for people to sin. And I heard this quote once from a seminary professor, and I always thought it was good. Sinners love wealth and use people. Love wealth and use people. Saints love people and use wealth to help others. That's the difference. And that's what we have here, people that love wealth, and they're going to step on people. We all know those people that will do whatever they have to, and sometimes we can fall into that in a real subtle way to get ahead. You know, if you're a contractor in here, you know what it is for people to try to entice you to cut corners, or you can be enticed yourself to cut corners, to make more money, bill for services that you didn't do, charge more than you know it is fair because you can. Got to get it somewhere, and this person here will let you do it, and get money under the table so not to pay taxes, and on and on and on. And isn't that what it's talking about here? Come with us because we got some money. Join with us. But the other way, you think about at the core of the problem here, unjust gain is gotten how? It's just gotten by stepping on somebody else. Stepping on somebody else. So is everyone that is greedy of unjust gain. And all of us are guilty of that. So many ways we can go after unjust gain. And we say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. And that happens through pride, through envy, through greed, through jealousy, through retaliation. Someone steps on our pride and we have to tell somebody about what they did and put them down and get a crowd around us to agree with us, even if it's just a crowd of one. Has anyone ever done that? Or is that just me? Or envy? Are you happy when someone else is praised for doing something you do? Or does it just make you burn inside and you got a grudge and you want others to join you in that grudge? That's what he's talking about here, I believe. Really want to see something bad happen to somebody that's done you wrong? Harboring resentment. And that's where violence and the shedding of blood begins, doesn't it? In our hearts. Your heart is lying awake for blood, and you're going to probably try to recruit somebody else in your cause. And we all know what I'm talking about, don't we? All know what I'm talking about. Don't think it's not you. This is why this warning is here. We all have to guard our hearts. Think about it this way. Applying what we're reading here in Proverbs 8 to 19. Jesus ended up on the cross. But what was the core issue that put him on the cross? Matthew 27, it says, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew they handed him over because of envy. Envy. What were they envious of? His power, his position, his favor with the people, and they knew it was going to knock them out of their position with Rome. And what was going to happen? We're saying envy, but what were they going to lose when they're knocked out of their position? Their lucrative income. Those guys were real wealthy, skimming the people. And so they recruited a mob, just like we're reading here. Come with us. Let us lie and wait for innocent blood. That's what religious people did. 
And we were all in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Don't say you wouldn't have done it. You would have done it. And I would have done it. So we got to watch our conversations with other people, don't we? When we see envy, pride, resentment in our hearts, we tend to recruit others on our side. Cast in your lot among us, he says in verse 14. Let us all have one purse. Cast in your lot among us. But the warning is we should avoid that type of fellowship because it's a false community. It's one that's based on destroying others, not on building up others. Because the true community of Christ is just the opposite of that, isn't it? It's not tearing down anybody. It's, it's building everyone up in the unity of the spirit that takes place. The Father's advice is to avoid these sinners for two reasons. And the first one is in verse 16 that it's just plain wrong. He said, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. He's saying it's evil and blood is going to be shed. And he's not just talking about the blood of the innocent. He's also talking about their blood, the ones that commit the crime. Because look what he says in verse 18. They've shed innocent blood back in verse 11, but verse 18 it says they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly. They think it's for someone else, but he's saying it's for their own lives. He's saying blood's going to be shed all the way around. <laughs> Your blood's going to be shed. And he's saying that's one reason to avoid that. Don't get in with that crowd. Because not only will you be shedding someone else's blood, he's saying your blood's going to be shed. And the second reason that he gives there is to avoid the enticement of sinners is because it's just plain stupid. Just plain stupid. That's what he's saying in verse 17. He says, surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. So he's contrasting and saying that. He's giving us a little proverb there within this discourse that God is building the birds more common sense than in that's in these foolish sinners who seem to be oblivious to the consequences of their deeds. So he's saying it's pointless. They would try to throw nets at these birds. He's saying you try to throw a net in the side of any bird, what's it going to do? That bird's got enough sense and he's going to fly the other direction, isn't it? It's not going to fly right into that net. God given sense to avoid it. But he's saying in verse 18, he's telling us that sinners are so stupid that they set a trap for themselves and step in it. They lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. When do traps work? When does a snare or a trap work? When the prey doesn't know what's happening. And he's saying the violent young men, the father's telling his son, these violent young men, these ones after blood, after their own way, after sin, they don't realize that they are going to be caught themselves. And the father is saying, look, I'm telling you in advance in a loving way. I'm telling you all about how this trap is going to be set, how they're going to come, how they're going to seduce you and what the end will be. So you can see it and you won't walk into it. That's what he's telling. Him. So he's saying, be wise. Listen, my son, when sinners set their trap in front of you, he's saying, get away from them. Fly, fly away like a bird. Be as smart at least as a bird. They're not. That's what he says in verse 15. Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. So in conclusion, talking about greed is really the topic here. It's not wrong to work, obviously. Not wrong to make an honest living to provide for your family. That's not a wrong desire, but it becomes a greedy desire and a trap 
when when prayer bible reading family and church takes second place and suffers we're not talking here like if you're not reading your bible praying or whatever you're in sin not implying that in any way but when everything else puts all of that so far in the back burner that a lot of times it's never even happening then you got an issue that's what he's talking about here when you unconsciously want to keep up with the Joneses, that's the crowd you're trying to keep up with. Even if the Joneses are Christian, it's an issue. And greed is a trap, and traps only work when they are not seen for what they are when they're hidden. The power of greed can just sneak up on us unawares. And this proverb is given here so that we will not be blind to the trap. Isn't that what it's for? The second thing I want to say here in closing is the dad's first lesson, this first discord is one we all need to pay special attention to. And that is we need to learn how to listen to the voices that are coming at us. Those two voices with discernment. There are two voices we'll hear as we make our way in this world. And we can listen to the voice of sinners which will be very persuasive and enticing. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And when they say, we'll find all kinds of precious possessions, fill our houses with spoils, cast in your lot among us. Don't listen to that, he says. Go the other way. We can listen to that voice and get sucked in. And believe me, young people, it's going to happen all the time. And you start giving in these things that you once held dear, values that you know you should hold, but you see no one else out there. And who wants to be the uncool one? Nobody wants to be that way. I've been there. I know how that works. But you can listen to that voice and be enticed and be taken down that path that he tells you, don't get on. That's God speaking through Solomon here. You listen to that voice. He says, or we can listen to the voice of our father who says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And here's what the voice of the Father says as far as riches are concerned. 1 Timothy 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we'll carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. He says this, though, here's words of wisdom. But those who desire to be rich may not ever even make it. But that's your goal. That's your desire. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's the wisdom of God right there. So the third and last thing is what we're learning here in this section of Proverbs is that we need to think, I said, about the messages we hear. And can we tell the difference and I'm saying this is critical in the hour we live right now between truth and deception, between promise and seduction. It asks us to think of the consequences that will come if we follow the urgings of these voices and messages. I'm hearing a lot of things being said now. It takes me back to, well, what does the word of God say? 
I hear all these opinions and all of this stuff. I keep saying this. I'm not getting too specific, but I could. Bondage, deception, whatever all else. I hear in these things from people that should know better. I mean, that's their business. I'm going back to the Word of God. I'm going to listen to what my Father says in the Word and line up what I'm hearing with that. That's the voice I'm going to listen to, not this voice of reason that's coming through. Does that mean we got to be idiots? No. I'm sticking with the Word. That's all I can say, and I don't mean to say that arrogantly at all. I really don't. But that's where I'm at. It's like people are going somewhere else. That's their business, I guess. But as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord, as Joshua said. And that's my prayer. So two things the father based his counsel on, and that is we get back to it's a critical thing. And that's where it is with me. It's like I hear what all you are saying, but it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to know, hey, this pressure is going to come. We have pressure coming. You have, like I said, it comes from even within a church. Paul warned, he said, wolves will enter in and devour you. They come in packs, don't they? And they're going to try to talk you out of truth. And it's only the fear of God that's going to keep you from that. He says, and then this pressure from society that's going to come and be more and more and more to compromise our convictions. And how dare you do whatever it is you're doing that's not acceptable to society or believe what you're believing. And that's why Jesus, this will start meaning more to us in Matthew chapter 10. He said, I'm going to tell you who to fear. Don't fear these ones. They can threaten you. What's the worst thing they can do to you? They can kill your body. He says, I want to tell you ahead of time whom to fear. Fear him who has the power and the ability to destroy both body and soul in hell. Because this is where our decisions are being made in the life we live that is going to determine where we end up for eternity. And he's pleading here. If sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come with us, and they're taking you away from the word. And the prophet that did that in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, they said, stone them. Even if a sign comes to pass, you've got to stay with what the Bible says. Amen. Because the fear of the Lord, that is where true knowledge and wisdom is gained. And that is the only safe path to walk on, even if you feel like you are totally by yourself. And the other thing he's saying here is they're trying to get you to do things that aren't right. And you need to understand, my son, he's saying, that God will give justice in the end. All this stuff about come with us, get involved in this fornication and you think somehow it may appear nothing's happening, you're getting away with that, you will not make it in the kingdom of God. He says, be not deceived. They can say whatever you want to, but the day of justice will come. This is the plea is listen to the instruction of your father. Repent. We'll see that next week. If you'll turn, he says, I'll pour out my spirit upon you. That's the pleading of wisdom. But justice will prevail. We'll look at verse 19 and end on that. It says, for the so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. What's going to happen? It says it takes away the life of its owners. So let's just continue to walk in the fear of the Lord and trust him to give us the wisdom to know how to do it in a humble way. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us here from Solomon and the way that you speak to us. Lord, I ask you'll give us all ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to have discernment in these last days. 
And that's what you promised in Malachi, Lord, that they that spake often one to another, you came down and listened to what they said, and you gave them discernment that they could judge between who is righteous and who is wicked. And I ask, Father, that you'll give all of us that kind of discernment, that we follow the paths of righteousness, and that you'll lead us in that way, in the right way, in the fear of you. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.